Chapter Thirteen of the Giant's Robe by F. Anstey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen, A Thorn and Flower Piece. Illusion had not been very long published before Mark began to have uncomfortable anticipations that it might be on the way to achieve an unexpected success, and he was nearer the truth in this than he himself believed as yet it might not become popular in the wider and coarser sense of the word being somewhat over the heads of the large class who read fiction for the story it might never find its way to railway bookstalls though even in this as will appear befell it in time or be considered a profitable subject for transatlantic piracy but it was already gaining recognition as a book that people of any culture should for their own sakes at least assume to have read and appreciated mark was hailed by many judges of such things as a new and powerful thinker who had chosen to veil his theories under the garb of romance and if the theory was dissented from in some quarters the power and charm of the book were universally admitted at dinner parties and in all circles where literature is discussed at all illusion was becoming a standard topic friendships were cemented and intimacies dissolved over it it became a kind of shibboleth at first mark had little opportunity of realizing this to the full extent for he went out seldom if at all there had been a time in his life before he had left cambridge that is when he had mixed more in society his undergraduate friends had been proud to present to their family circle a man with his reputation for general brilliancy and so his engagements in the vacations had been frequent but this did not last from a feeling that his own domestic surroundings would scarcely bear out a vaguely magnificent way he had of alluding to his place and his people a way which was not so much deliberate imposition as a habit caught from associates richer and higher up in the social scale from this feeling he never offered to return any of these hospitalities and though this was not rigorously expected of him it did serve to prevent any one of his numerous acquaintanceships from ripening into something more when the crash came and it was generally discovered that the reputed brilliant man of his year was a very ordinary failure mark found himself speedily forgotten and in the first soreness of disappointment was not sorry to remain in obscurity for a season but now a reaction in his favour was settling in his publishers were already talking of a second edition of illusion and he received under his name of cyril ernstone countless letters of congratulation and kindly criticism all so pleasantly and cordially worded that each successive note made him angrier the only one that consoled him at all being a communication in a female hand which abused the book and its writer in the most unmeasured terms for his correspondent's estimate of the work was the one which he had a secret wish to see more prevalent so long of course as it did not interfere with the success of his scheme and he could almost have written to thank her had she not by some unfortunate oversight forgotten to append her name and address the next stage in the career of the book was a discovery on someone's part that the name of its author was an assumed one and although there are many authors who would as little think of looking for the name of the man who wrote the play they see or the book they read 
as they would for that of the locomotive behind which they travel there are still circles for whom the first two matters at least possess an interest and so several set out to run the actual author to earth well assured that as is fabled of the fox he himself would enjoy the sport as much as his pursuers and it is the fact that mark might have given them a much longer run had he been anxious to do so but though he regretted it afterwards the fruits of popularity were too desirable to be foregone there were some false cries at first a london correspondent knew for a fact that the book was written by an old lady at a lunatic asylum in her lucid intervals while a lady's journal had heard that the author was a common carpenter and entirely self-educated and there were other similar discoveries but before they had time to circulate widely it became somehow common knowledge that the author was a young schoolmaster and that his real name was mark ashburn and mark at once began to reap the benefit his old friends sought him out once more men who had passed him in the streets with a careless nod that was almost as bad as a cut direct or without even the smallest acknowledgment that a time had been when they were inseparables now found time to stop him and ask if the rumours of his debut in literature were really true by and by cards began to line his mantelpiece as in the old days he went out once more and met everywhere the kindness and courtesy that the world of london whatever may be said against it is never chary of showing towards the most insignificant person who has once had the good fortune to arouse its interest mark liked it all at first but as he saw the book growing more and more in favour and the honours paid to himself increasing he began to be uneasy at his own success he would not have objected to the book securing a moderate degree of attention so as to prepare the public mind for the blaze of intellect he had in reserve for it that he had expected or at least hoped for but the mischief of his ridiculous enthusiasm which every one he met seemed to be affecting over this book of holroyd's was that it made an anticlimax only too possible when his own should see the light mark heard compliments and thanks with much the annoyance a practised raconteur must feel with the feeble listener who laughs heartily while the point of the story he is being told is still in perspective and soon he wished heartily that the halo he felt was burning round his undeserving head could be moderated or put out like a lamp it was such an inconvenience he could never escape from holroyd's book people would talk to him about it sooner or later while talking to the most charming persons just when he was feeling himself conversationally at his very best he would see the symptoms he dreaded warning him that the one fatal topic was about to be introduced which seemed to have the effect of paralyzing his brain he would struggle hard against it making frantic efforts to turn the subject and doubling with infinite dexterity but generally his interlocutor was not to be put off running cunning as it were like a greyhound dead to sporting instincts and fixing him at once with a now mr ash you really must allow me to express to you some of the pleasure and instruction i have received from your book and so on and then mark found himself forced to listen with ghastly smiles of sham gratification to the praises of his rival as he now felt holroyd was after all becoming and had to discuss with the air of a creator his book 
which he had never cared to understand, and soon came cordially to detest. If he had been the real author, all this would of course have been delightful to him. It was all so kind, and so evidently sincere, for the most part, that only a very priggish or cynical person could have affected to undervalue it, and any other, even if he felt it overstrained now and then, would have enjoyed it frankly while it lasted, remembering that, in the nature of things, it could not last very long. But unfortunately, Mark had not written Illusion, which made all the difference. No author could have shrunk more sensitively in his inmost soul than he did from the praise of his fellow men, and his modesty would have been more generally remarked had he not been wise enough to perceive that modesty, in a man, is a virtue with a dangerous streak of the ridiculous about it. And so he braced himself to go through with it and play out his part. It would not be for long. Soon he would have his own book to be complimented upon and to explain. Meanwhile, he worked hard at illusion, until he came to have a considerable surface acquaintance with it. He knew the names of all the more important characters in it now, and hardly ever mixed them up. He worked out most of the illusions, and made a careful analysis of the plot and pedigrees of some of the families. It was much harder work than reading law, and quite as distasteful, but then it had to be done if he meant to preserve appearances at all. His fame had penetrated to St. Peter's, where his fellow masters treated him with an unaccustomed deference, only partially veiled by mild badinage on the part of the younger men, while even the boys were vaguely aware that he had distinguished himself in the outer world, and Mark found his authority much easier to maintain. "'How's that young rascal? What's his name? Langton?' The little scamp who said he called me prawn, but not shellfish, the impudent fellow. How's he getting on, hey? said Mr. Shelford to Mark one day about this time. Mark replied that the boy had left his form now, but that he heard he was doing well, and had begun to acquire the graceful art of verse-making. Verse-making? Ay, ay, is he indeed? You know, Ashburn, I often think it's a good thing there are none of the old Romans alive now. They weren't a humorous nation, taken as a whole, but I fancy some of our prized Latin verses would set the stiffest of em sniggering, and we laugh at baboo English, as they call it. But you tell Langton from me, when you see him, if he likes to try his hand at a set of elegiacs on a poor old cat of mine that died the other day, I'll look em over if he brings them to me after school some day, and if they're what I consider worthy of the deceased men's virtues, I'll find some way of rewarding him. She was a black Persian, and her name was Jinx, but he'll find it Latinized well as Jinxia, tell him. And now I think of it, he added, I never congratulated you on the effort of your muse. It's not often I read these things now, but I took your book up, and maybe I'm too candid in telling you so, but it fairly surprised me. I'd no idea you had it in you. Mark found it difficult to hit the right expression of countenance at such a compliment, but he did it. "'There are some very fine things in that book, sir,' continued Mr. Shelford. "'Some very noble words. Remarkable for so young a man as you must be. "'You have lived, Ashburn. It's easy to see that.' "'Oh, well,' said Mark. "'I've, I've knocked about, you know.' "'Ah, oh, and you've knocked something into you, too, which is more to the purpose.' 
i'd like to know now when you found time to construct your theories of life and conduct mark began to find this embarrassing he said he had hit upon them at odd times very odd times he could not help remembering and shifted his ground a little uneasily but he was held fast by the buttonhole they're remarkably sound and striking i must say that and your story is interesting too i found myself looking at the end sir <laughs> to see what became of your characters ah, i knew there was something i wanted to ask you there's a heading you've got for one of your chapters a quotation from some latin author which i can't place to my satisfaction i mean that one beginning non terret principes oh that one repeated mark blankly yes it reads to me like later latin where do you take it from one of the fathers one of them i forget which said mark quickly wishing he had cut the quotations out that igritudo now igritudo superveniens you know how do you understand that mark had never troubled himself to understand it at all so he stared at his interrogator in rather a lost way i mean do you take it as of the mind or body that's what made me fancy it must be later latin and then there's the correxit mark admitted that there was the correxit it's mind he said quickly oh decidedly the mind not body and er uh, i think that's my bus passing i'll say good-bye and he escaped with a weary conviction that he must devote yet more study to the detested illusion this is only a sample of the petty vexations to which he had exposed himself he had taken over a business which he did not understand and naturally found the technicalities troublesome for though as has been seen his own tendencies were literary he had not soared so high as a philosophical romance while his scholarship more brilliant than profound was not always equal to the unseen messages from out-of-the-way authors with which holroyd had embellished his chapters but a little more care made him feel easier on this score and then there were many compensations for one unexpected piece of good fortune which will be recorded presently he had mainly to thank his friend's book he had met an old acquaintance of his a certain young herbert featherstone who had on any previous chance encounter seemed affected by a kind of trance during which his eyes lost all power of vision but was now completely recovered so much so indeed as to greet mark with a quite unexpected warmth was it true that he had written this new book what was its name delusion or something fellows were saying he had hadn't read it himself his mother and sister had said it was a devilish good book too where was he hanging out now and what was he doing on the tenth could he come to a little dance his people had that night very well then he should have a card mark was slightly inclined to let the other understand that he knew the worth of this resuscitated friendliness but he refrained he knew of the featherstones as wealthy people with the reputation of giving the pleasantest entertainments in london he had his way to make in the world and could not afford he thought to neglect these opportunities so he went to the dance and as he happened to dance well enjoyed himself in spite of the fact that two of his partners had read illusion and knew him as the author of it they were both pretty and charming girls 
but Mark did not enjoy either of those particular valses. In the course of the evening he had a brief conversation with his hostess, and was fortunate enough to produce a favourable impression. Mrs. Featherstone was literary herself, as a reputedly strong-minded lady, who had once written two particularly weak-minded novels would necessarily be. She liked to have a few rising young literary men in her train, with whom she might discuss subjects loftier than ordinary society cares to grasp, but she was careful at the same time that her daughter should not share too frequently in these intellectual privileges, for Gilda Featherstone was very handsome, and literary men are as impressionable as other people. Mark called one Saturday afternoon at the Featherstone's house in Grosvenor Place, as he had been expressly invited to do on the occasion of the dance, and found Mrs. Featherstone at home. It was not her regular day, and she received him alone, though Mark heard voices and laughter now and then from behind the hangings which concealed the end-room of the long suite. "'And now let us talk about your delightful illusion, Mr. Ernstone,' she said graciously. "'Do you know?' i felt when i read your book that some of my innermost thoughts my highest aspirations had been put into words and such words for me it was soul speaking to soul and you get that in so few novels you know what a rapture literary creation is don't you feel that i am sure even in my own poor little way you must know that i have scribbled once upon a time even in my own experience I know what a state of excitement I got into over my own stories. One's characters get to be actual living companions to one. They act by themselves, and all one has to do is just to sit by and look on and describe. This seemed to Mark to prove a vividness of imagination on Mrs. Featherstone's part, to which her literary productions had not, so far as he knew, done full credit. But he was equal to the occasion. "'Your characters, Mrs. Featherstone, are companions to many more than their creator. "'I must confess that I, for one, fell hopelessly in love with your Gwendolyn Vane in Mammon and Moonshine.' Mark had once read a slashing review of a flabby little novel with a wooden heroine of that name, and turned it to good account now, after his fashion. "'Now how nice of you to say that,' she said, highly pleased. "'I am very fond of Gwendolyn myself.' my ideal you know i won't quote that about praise from sir hubert because it's so very trite but i feel it but do you really like gwendolen better than my madeline harwood in strawberries and cream here mark got into deep water once more but he was no mean conversational swimmer and reached dry land without any unseemly floundering it has been suggested to me do you know she said when her own works had been at last disposed of that your illusion would make such an admirable play the central motive really so dramatic of course one would have to leave the philosophy out and all the beautiful reflections but the story would be left have you ever thought of dramatizing it yourself mr ashburn mark could not ah well she said if ever i have time again to give to literature I shall ask your permission to let me see what I can do with it. I have written some little charades for drawing-room theatricals, you know, so I am not quite without experience. Mark, wondering inwardly how Holroyd would relish this proposal, if he were alive, said that he was sure the story would gain by her treatment, 
and presently she proposed that they should go to the further room and see how the young people were getting on which mark received with an immense relief and followed her through the portiere to the inner room in which as will be seen an unexpected stroke of good fortune was to befall him they found the young people together with a married sister of mrs featherstone sitting round a small table on which was a heap of cartes de visite as they used to be called for no very obvious reason gilda featherstone a lively brunette with the manner of a young lady accustomed to her own way looked up from the table to welcome mark you've caught us all at a very frivolous game mr ashburn i hope you won't be shocked we've all had our feelings outraged at least once so we're going to stop now while we're still on speaking terms but what is it said mrs featherstone it isn't cards gilda dearest is it no mother not quite very nearly though mr caffin showed it us he calls it photonap let me explain mrs featherstone said caffin who liked to drop in at grosvenor place occasionally where he was on terms of some intimacy i don't know if you're acquainted with the game of nap mrs featherstone shook her head not too amiably for she had been growing alarmed of late by a habit her daughter had acquired of mentioning or quoting this versatile young man whom her husband persisted so blindly in encouraging ah said caffin unabashed well anyway this is modelled on it we take out a selection of photographs the oldest preferred shuffle them and deal around five photographs to each player and the ugliest card in each round takes the trick i call it a most ill-natured game said the aunt who had seen an old and unrecognised portrait of herself and the likenesses of several of her husband's family a plain one voted the master cards oh so much must be said for it said caffin it isn't a game to be played everywhere of course but it gives great scope for the emotions think of the pleasure of gaining a trick with the portrait of your dearest friend and then it's such a capital way of ascertaining your own and others precise positions in the beauty scale and all the plain people acquire quite a new value as picture cards he had played his own very cautiously having found his amusement in watching the various revelations of pique and vanity amongst the others and so could speak with security my brothers all took tricks said one young lady who had inherited her mother's delicate beauty while the rest of the family resembled a singularly unhandsome father which enabled her to speak without very deep resentment so did poor dear papa said gilda but that was the only one taken in fancy dress and he would go as dante nothing could stand against gurgoyle observed caffin he was a chureace every time he'll be glad to know he was such a success you must tell him miss featherstone no i won't have poor mr gurgold made fun of said mrs featherstone but with a considerable return of amiability people always tell me that with all his plainness he's the most amusing young man in town though i confess i never could see any signs of it myself the fact was that an unlucky epigram by the mr gurgoyle in question at mrs featherstone's expense which of course had found its way to her had produced a coolness on her part as caffin was perfectly well aware ars escalare artem as mr bancroft remarks at the haymarket he said lightly gurgoyle is one of those people who is always put down as witty till he has the indiscretion to try then they put him down some other way 
"'But why is he considered witty, then, if he isn't?' asked Gilda Featherstone. "'I don't know. I suppose because we like to think nature makes these compensations sometimes. But Gurgol must have put her out of temper at the very beginning. She's done nothing in that way for him.' Mrs. Featherstone, although aware that the verdict on the absent Gurgoyle was far from being a just one, was not altogether above being pleased by it, and showed it by a manner many degrees more thawed than that she had originally prescribed to herself in dealing with this very ineligible young actor. "'Mr. Ashburn,' said Miss Featherstone, after one or two glances in the direction of Caffin, who was absorbed in following up the advantage he had gained with her mother, "'will you come and help me to put these photos back? "'There are lots of Bertie's Cambridge friends here, "'and you can tell me who those I don't know are.' "'So Mark followed her to a side-table, "'and then came the stroke of good fortune which has been spoken of. "'For as he was replacing the likenesses in the album "'in the order they were given to him, "'he was given one at the sight of which "'he could not avoid a slight start.' It was a vignette, very delicately and artistically executed, of a girl's head, and as he looked, hardly daring to believe in such a coincidence, he was almost certain that the pure brow, with the tendrils of soft hair curling above it, the deep clear eyes, and the mouth which, for all its sweetness, had the possibility of disdain in its curves, were those of no other than the girl he had met months ago, and had almost resigned himself never to meet again. His voice trembled a little with excitement, as he said, "'May I ask the name of this lady?' "'That is Mabel Langton. I think she's perfectly lovely, don't you? She was to have been at our dance the other night, and then you would have seen her, but she couldn't come at the last moment.' "'I think I have met Miss Langton,' said Mark, beginning to see now all that he had gained by learning this simple surname. "'Hasn't she a little sister called Dorothy?' "'Dolly? Oh, yes!' "'Sweetly pretty child, terribly spoiled. "'I think she will put dear Mabel quite in the shade by the time she comes out. "'Her features are so much more regular. "'Yes, I see you know our Mabel Langton. "'And now do tell me, Mr. Ashburn, "'because of course you can read people's characters so clearly, you know. "'What do you think of Mabel, really and truly?' "'Miss Featherstone was fond of getting her views on the characters of her friends "'revised and corrected for her, by competent male opinion but it was sometimes embarrassing to be appealed to in this way while only a very unsophisticated person would permit himself to be entirely candid either in praise or detraction well really said mark you see i have only met her once in my life oh but that must be quite enough for you mr ashburn and mabel langton is always such a puzzle to me I can never quite make up my mind if she is really as sweet as she seems. Sometimes I fancy I have noticed, and yet I can't be sure. I've heard people say that she's just the least bit, not exactly conceited, perhaps, but too inclined to trust her own opinion about things and snub people who won't agree with her. But she isn't, is she? I always say that it's quite wrong about her. Still, perhaps... Oh, wouldn't you like to know mr caffin he is very clever and amusing you know and has just gone on the stage but he's not as good there as we all thought he would be he's coming this way now here caffin strolled leisurely towards them and the introduction was made of course you have heard of mr ashburn's great book illusion 
Gilda Featherstone said, as she mentioned Mark's name. "'Heard of nothing else lately,' said Caffin. "'After which I am ashamed to have to own I haven't read it, but it's the disgraceful truth.' Mark felt the danger of being betrayed by a speech like this into saying something too hideously fatuous, over the memory of which he would grow hot with shame in the night-watches, so he contented himself with an indulgent smile, perhaps in default of some impossible combination of wit and modesty, his best available resource. Besides, the new acquaintance made him strangely uneasy. He felt warned to avoid him by one of those odd instincts which, although we scarcely ever obey them, are surely given us for our protection. He could not meet the cold light eyes which seemed to search him through and through. "'Mr. Ashburn and I were just discussing somebody's character,' said Miss Featherstone, by way of ending an awkward pause. "'Poor somebody,' drawled Caffin, with an easy impertinence which he had induced many girls, and Gilda amongst them, to tolerate, if not admire. "'You need not pity her,' said Gilda indignantly. "'We were defending her.' "'Ah!' said Caffin. "'From one another.' "'No, we were not.' and if you are going to be cynical and satirical and all that you can go away well sit down then and behave yourself what must you go mr ashburn good-bye then mr caffin i want you to tell me what you really think about mark heard no more than this he was glad to escape to get away from caffin's scrutiny he looked as if he knew i was a humbug he thought afterwards and also to think at his leisure over this new discovery and all it meant for him he knew her name now he saw a prospect of meeting her at some time or other in the house he had just left but perhaps he might not even have to wait for that this little girl whose childish letter he had tossed aside a few days since in his blindness who else could she be but the owner of the dog after which he had clambered up the railway slope and he had actually been about to neglect her appeal well he would write now who could say what might not become of it at all events she would read his letter that letter gave mark an infinite deal of trouble after attentively reading the little story to which it referred he sat down to write and tore up sheet after sheet in disgust for he had never given much study to the childish understanding with its unexpected deeps and shallows and found the task of writing down to it go much against the grain but the desire of satisfying a more fastidious critic than dolly gave him at last a kind of inspiration and the letter he did send with some misgiving could hardly have been better written for the particular purpose he was pleasantly reassured as to this a day or two later by another little note from dolly asking him to come to tea at kensington park gardens on any afternoon except monday or tuesday and adding evidently by external suggestion that her mother and sister would be pleased to make his acquaintance mark read this with a thrill of eager joy what he had longed for had come to pass then he was to see her speak with her once more at least he was indebted to illusion for this result which a few months since seemed of all things the most unlikely this time she would not leave him without a word or sign as when they last met he might be allowed to come again even in time to know her intimately and he welcomed this piece of good fortune as a happy omen for the future 
End of chapter 13